<laughs> okay. If you have Bibles with you, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So before I get into ser- to the sermon, I, I saw something during worship. And sometimes, sometimes God speaks to me in pictures. I see the picture you know, in my mind's eye, in the spirit, and, and it impacts my heart in such a way that it's like, oh, I know that's God. I may not always instantly understand what the picture means, but as I ponder it for a bit, and most of you guys are looking this way, but I'm usually in the back of the room on Sunday, and I'm kind of pacing back and forth, and usually it's kind of like, like I'm prayer walking. I'm, I'm kind of sensing something from God. I'm walking back and forth saying, okay, you know, what is this, Lord? What is it? So this is the picture I saw. It was an unusual picture. It was like a big window. But instead of glass being in the window, it was like one of those windows where it had the, the pane cut in four. So it's, but instead of like glass being there, it was all black. It was like, I don't know, it was like stone or rock. Maybe, maybe like slate, you know? And so there was, there, there was no way to see through the window. And then I saw this hammer. It looked like a handheld sledge. And it just came and it whacked right at the center of that thing. And what was rock, it just shattered like glass. And then bright light came shining through. And so instantly I was like, wow, I really think that's a God picture. And I think it's good. You know, but Lord, what are you, what are you telling me? And a scripture verse uh, came to mind from uh, Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 23, 29. And, um, and this is the Lord speaking. It says, is not my word like fire? declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock to pieces. Yeah, that's what the Word of God does. I think that's what the written Word can do when, when truth is illuminated to us. I believe that's what prophetic words, what words inspired by the Holy Spirit can do. It can come and it can shatter the rock so that the light can come shining through. And my hope today is that is that that'll be, that'll exactly be the case, that the message I share with you uh, from the Word of God, will be like a rock, will be like a hammer that shatters the rock. And that the result of it, the end result, by the time we're finished, is that we'll all get to see much more light, that things will be greatly and increasingly more illuminated in our midst as a church. Does that sound pretty good? I could go for some of that, right? I mean, I'm thinking I probably got some sleep-covered co- co- windows in my spiritual house. How about you? I'd rather have some light shining through. So, Lord, do that today. I pray, Jesus, that you come. Let your word be, uh, be used like a hammer that breaks rock so that there would be greater illumination of your light and your light and your truth in our lives. Amen. So, um, the past few weeks I've been doing something that, honestly, I have not done in a long time. I've been, I've been offering a series of one-of messages. Now, I've been, it's going on three years that I've been the pastor here, and I've always preached either topical sermon series or, you know, through a, a series of <coughs> chapters of scripture. And so to do one of each week is, is kind of out of the norm for me, but I don't know, it's just kind of felt like God. Like week after week, something that'll happen to, the, on this Sunday will spark or inspire something for the next Sunday. And so far, I don't know, it seems like God to me, and so I'm just kind of going with it. We're going to do that again today. I've, in the past few weeks, I've shared messages on freedom. It's one of my highest personal values. It's, it truly is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Um, the one Sunday we, we met over at the, the home in Grand, uh, there, there was another event going on here. We talked about the five love languages and just kind of went with that. Boy, there seemed to be a lot of life on it that day uh, for us. On Mother's Day, um, we shared about uh, vineyard history, how Mother's Day is significant in the history of the vineyard. So I thought it's important every once in a while for the tribe to hear the tribe's story. And so just kind of shared some of our, our spiritual history. Um, I shared a message on freedom in the spirit. Second uh, Corinthians 3.17 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the freedom that was addressed specifically in that text is freedom of access, that we have access to God because of what Jesus did. There's a freedom where we can access God. We don't have to jump through hoops or work through channels or get all the paperwork, you know, eyes dotted and T's crossed. We have access because of what Jesus did. Because the Spirit of God lives within us, we have freedom of access. That's good news. And then uh, last week, Carolyn Reed spoke for us on the free, uh, faithfulness of God, and she did a great job. I, I appreciate it. Now, today is going to be another one of those one-of messages. And um, Last week was Pentecost Sunday, and during the announcements, I, I said this. I made a pronouncement. I said, the Charlottetown Vineyard is a spirit-filled church. You guys remember me saying that during the announcements? The Charlottetown Vineyard is a spiritual church. I said that we are intentionally and unapologetically a spiritual church. And I hold that uh, to be true. Um, but the thought occurred to me this week. I said, it seems like one Sunday something is said or done and it kind of sticks with me and sparks this next one of message for the following week. And so it's kind of been in me this week. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a spiritual church? And um, so I want to address that question today, or at least begin to address it. And not surprisingly, I'd like to do it from a unique perspective. I want to challenge, um, I want to offer some challenging insights, and I want to do it from the heart. So we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 to 31. And um, this portion of scripture is really broken down into two parts. Verses 10 to 17 is addressing the question of divisions uh, in the church over leaders. Verses 18 to 31 is speaking about the power and the wisdom of God. Eventually I'm going to work my way to verse 23, uh, especially the term in verse 23, stumbling block. And so hang on with me. We're going to go for a little journey. And um, um, and it's going to be good. So let me read those scripture verses to begin with. Beginning at verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's writing, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but you, being perfectly united in mind and thought, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Cleo's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you've been baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I love how honest Paul is in his writing. Well, I wrote this, but yeah, that too. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Then he goes on from verse 18, talking about Christ crucified and the power and, and God's power and wisdom. Verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I'll frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demanded signs and Greeks looked for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, I thank you for your word that has been recorded and saved throughout history. That's available to us today for the powerful weightiness of the truth that's in your word. Lord, I pray that you just even the likes of me today to communicate your word to your people in a way that's, that's life-giving to them, that shatters the rock, that covers our windows, and lets the light come shining through. Amen? So before I get into my insights, let me give you some context on, on the verse. The author is, is clearly the Apostle Paul. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This letter is from Paul, <laughs> chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother uh, Sestanus. Now, Sestanus was a Christian brother and a friend of Paul. They traveled together. Or he at least be a, a scribe. It's probably written between the years 53 and 55 AD. And the overall theme of the letter is basically how do you live a Christian lifestyle uh, in a pagan society. It's really powerful stuff. It really applies to the world today. Uh, for something that was written 2,000 years ago, boy, it can fit in much of uh, current culture. A little bit of backstory. Corinth was a large city. It was, it was busy, active. It was a wealthy city. Because of its location, um, goods and people from around the world flowed in and out of Corinth's ports. 
Um, it was a center for things like art and philosophy and religion. It contained a number of large uh, pagan temples, including uh, ones to Apollos and Aphrodite. So it was a mix there, philosophy of art and different types of culture, different types of spirituality. Um, the city um, had a pretty bad reputation for, for vice and for sin, for immorality. One commentary I wrote said that Corinth was known for debauchery. How would you like that? <laughs> you know, what's, what's the catchphrase? We're known for debauchery. <laughs> that wouldn't be too fun. Kind of like a modern-day Las Vegas, Sin, sin City, you know? or New York City, where I grew up. <laughs> Paul spent 18 years establishing a church, uh, 18 months establishing a church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 18 if you want to. Um, this letter was written probably three or four years um, after he had left there. Um, and, it's in, and the letter is, re, is a response to um, a letter Paul had received where they were explaining to him that there were problems at the church, that there were, there were issues and there were concerns that they had. And I have to tell you, as a modern-day pastor, I'm strangely comforted to know that the early church had problems too. You know, it's not... It's not new to just us. They didn't have it all together from the beginning either. The, some characteristics. The Corinthian church destroys, in my opinion, the myth that the early church is the model you know, to, to follow. If we could just get back to what the first century church was. Well, Corinth was a mess. And so if we want to go back to the first century church, we don't want to go back to this. These dudes have problems. You know, they wrestled with seduction by surrounding pagan culture and some hyper-spirituality that led the church into just a whole host of problems. So as a result, 1 Corinthians is full of information about how a Christian lifestyle differs from uh, the culture as a whole. There are two major parts chapters, uh, in this letter. Chapters 1 to 6 deals with four problems that were reported uh, to Paul. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says, My brothers and sisters, some of Cleo's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So Paul begins to address that. And then later on in the book, and we're not going to look at this today, but chapter 7 to 15, Paul begins to address a variety of issues uh, that the Corinthians had written about. Verse 1 of chapter 7 begins this way. Now for the matters you wrote about. He's saying, now I'm going to respond to the things you have concerns with. So, the church of Corinth was absolutely a spirit-filled church. I mean, this is where we get 1 Corinthians 12, and, and Paul's laying out um, all of his uh, 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 descriptions of the, as the body, of the church being the body, and like a physical body, each part has a different role to play. A spiritual body, there are different gifts given to each part of the body. It, it, this was a spirit-filled church. Um, he addresses issues of tongues and prophecy and, and other parts of, of the letter. In verse 14, chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 14, I love, uh, he, he challenges the church to pursue love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. So th this is a spirit-filled church that he's writing to, but it's a spiritual-filled church that had problems. The, the first three verses I read. 10 to 13. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united 
in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Cleo's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, and still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? The early church, the early church, the first century church, it was divided. It had issues. It had problems. It was divided in Corinth. It was divided over people, and it was divided over cultures. It was divided over personalities, and it was divided over leaders. It was divided over opinions, and it was divided over preferences. And the church hasn't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. <clears throat> We're still divided over some of that very same stuff. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. I follow the other guy. You know? I like the way this guy leads better than the way that guy leads. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Paul guy. I'm with Apollos. You know? I'm for Cephas. And so, and so we, we, we wind up having divisions among us. There's camps. Nowadays, people just kind of bounce around from church to church. So Paul, Paul appeals to them, and he, and he challenged them to think differently. And so I want to do that for you today. I want to answer the question today, what is a spirit-filled church? And I think for us to fully grasp what that means is that we're going to have to think differently. I appeal to you in the same way that Paul appealed to the believers in Corinth. In the name of our Lord Jesus then all of you agree. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. And what you're saying, that there be no divisions among you, but that we be perfectly united in mind and thought. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't, yes. That would be awesome, wouldn't it? Man, I think that would be awesome. I think it might require a miracle. <laughs> but, but I really think it would be all. It sounds like God's way. Matter of fact, it reminds me of, the, of the, the prayer Jesus prayed for us, for you and for me in John chapter 17. It's exactly, exactly what he prayed. It's what he asked to follow. Verse 20 says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So, before verse 20, Jesus is praying for the disciples that were gathered around him. And now he shifts to pray. He says, Father, I'm praying not only for these 12 guys I got to hang out with for the last three years, but for everybody who will believe because of their message. That includes you and me. We're here today because they followed Jesus and the message is carried on, right? So when it says in verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one father, just as you are in me, and I'm in you. Man, that's a powerful prayer. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. That they may be one as we are one. What Jesus is saying is that us, us people, people here in Southtown, on Prince Edward Island, in Canada, on this planet, that we would be one to the same degree that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Man, that's, a, that's some serious heavy-duty oneness. That's a pretty incredible degree of unity. Powerful. 
Verse 23, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you love me. Whew. Man, that would be, that'd be awesome. You know what? This is Jesus praying to the Father. And I'm pretty sure the Father's going to say yes to Jesus' prayers. I'm thinking he's going to answer Jesus' prayers. I don't think Jesus is just like being hyper-spiritual, letting words blah, 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 you know, flow out of his mouth, and the Father's, you know, it's like Charlie Brown, the Father's here, wah, 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 wah. I think that was a real prayer from Jesus, and it was really heard by the Father, and I think the heart of the Father is this, yes, yes, there's going to be a oneness. There's going to be a unity to the degree that the Father, Spirit, and Son are one. It's going to be among people. Well, in my heart, I believe the Father's going to answer that prayer. And some of us, throughout our journey from time to time, we've, we've captured glimpses. Or we've had seasons, all too short, but we've had seasons where we've seen some of it. And I think it's possible. I actually think it's possible because all things are possible with God. However, obviously, the church universal, <laughs> we still got a long way to go in this whole unity thing, don't we? I read somewhere recently, are we up to something like 40,000 different Christian denominations? It's somewhere in that. 40,000? Seriously? Whew. Not good. Could it be that this lack of unity, could it be that it, this disunity among brothers and sisters is part of the reason why the world doesn't know that we're his? Jesus said it this way a few chapters earlier in John 13. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you love one another, they don't know. Everyone don't know. We can look out in the world. We can look out beyond the four walls of the church. And there are oceans of people that they don't know that we're his. And I'm thinking a big part of the reason this, we don't love one another. So what is a spirit-filled church? That's the title of today's message, a spirit-filled church. What is a spirit-filled church? Well, of course a spirit-filled church is a church that follows the leading of the Holy Spirit, one that operates in the gifts of the Spirit, and a church that bears the fruit of the Spirit. That, that all makes sense to us, doesn't it? But I think a truly spirit-filled church is a place where love is valued above all else. Where love is our highest value. Doesn't that feel right? Doesn't that just sit right? I, I'm going to value love above everything else. And where the fruit of love, unity, is evident to all. Those inside the church and those outside the church where everyone knows that we belong to Jesus because of the way that we love one another. Isn't that awesome? Now, I've been doing this thing, Christian thing for a while, and I know many of you guys have too. I've observed a few things. And we've, we've pastored churches in different places and all across the U.S. and now in Canada. And all the different cultures we've been in, all the different places we've been in, I've, I've, I can identify a handful of enemies to this type of love and unity. And usually in one shape, form, or another, it's this. It's church politics. Man, I hate church politics. 
You guys know what church politics is, right? Church politics. I hate church politics. Church politics. These are the enemies of love and unity. Opinions. <laughs> Offenses. Gossip. Oh, these things are the, these are killers of love and unity. Just killers. They're like cancer in a body. They cultivate the exact opposite of love and unity. They, they, they suck love out of the body and they foster disunity. It ought not be. Some of us have been doing this so long, we ought to know better by now. I'm discovering for myself that <laughs> some sometimes the best thing I can do is just shut up. Yeah? I might have told the story before. But one of the churches we were at, we'd do, we would do these streams classes, John Paul Jackson's ministry, and they'd, they'd be marathon, marathon events from Thursday night to Saturday night. We'd put in a really two full long days and a half a day of activity. By Saturday night, midnight, you know, we're locking up the church. We're exhausted, you know. And Nadine will back me up on this, but when I'm, when I'm fatigue is my enemy. When I'm tired, man, when, I, when I'm drained, I'm cranky. I'm intolerant, right? I have no patience. I'm frustrated. And so I'd be driving home after you know, a wonderful weekend where lots of ministry happened, and all these good things happened, and all, this, all these complaints are in my mind. Well, so-and-so didn't do this, and so-and-so didn't do that, and this should have been taken care of, and that should have been taken care of. And I'm, and I'm driving home. I used to have to drive over this blue bridge. They called it the blue bridge town. I drive over the blue bridge to get from the church to my house. And I can't tell you how many times I'm on that bridge, and I, these thoughts are going through my mind. And I'm saying to myself, Zawacki, shut up. Zawacki, just shut up. Zawacki, just shut up. Because I know. If I get home and I just go to bed, I'm going to feel so much better in the morning. After a good night's sleep, all those things that were annoying me to no end on Saturday night will have such little power on Sunday morning. Sometimes the most spiritual thing I can do, sometimes the, the, the most important thing I can do to foster love and unity in my community, is to bite my tongue. Let's bite my tongue. Because it'll be better tomorrow. It's not take the bait. You know? Somebody dangles something, or something is said or done. And rather than jump at it, because that's what my flesh often wants to do, I just bite my tongue. And so it pass. James chapter 3, verses 6 to 10, speaks about the tongue. He says, The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures, are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a relentless evil. That's what it would feel like for me driving over the Blue Bridge, this relentless evil just exploding in my mouth. <coughs> Full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Now why did James have to write this? Why did James have to write those verses? Well, obviously, there was a problem then. Right? It was a problem for the early church. It's still a problem for the church. All right, back to our main text, verses 18 and 19. He says, For the message of the cross... It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent, 
the intelligence of the intelligent are frustrated. Paul's actually quoting Isaiah 29-14 here. So this was a problem for the church then, and still a problem for the church today. Especially for the church here in the West, because we exalt human wisdom and intelligence above everything else. We, we think it's just the height. You know, it's the pinnacle. I was telling somebody recently that, I says, you know, I come from America. I'm a, you know, I'm a guest. I'm a visitor here. I'm here at, you know, at your graciousness here in Canada. I said, in America, I said, we have the mindset where we think that we're better than everybody else in the world. We absolutely do. I know you do. <laughs> we think we're better than everybody else. And coming from New York City, we think that we're better than everybody else in the rest of America. <laughs> it's kind of the problem that the Western church has when it comes to exalting human wisdom and intelligence. We think that we know better than even God. We do. It's pretty foolish. Paul goes on in verse 20, he says, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The message communicates it this way. It says, I'll turn unconventional wisdom on its head. I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head. I'll expose so-called experts as crackpots. Ooh. I think God likes messing with our stuff. I think he likes playing with our heads. I think he likes to, to display for us every once in a while just how foolish our wisdom is. So we could ask it this way today. Where are the intellectuals? Where are the theologians? Where are the famous self-help gurus of our day? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the answer is this. Yes, he has. He absolutely has. So what is the spirit-filled church? Number two, in my humble opinion, the truly spirit-filled church will embrace God's ways over their own opinions, experiences, training, human wisdom, logic, and reason. When the choice is before me, on the one hand, I have my opinions, experience, training, human wisdom, logic, and reason, and on the other hand, I have God's ways, a truly spirit-filled church will follow God's ways over and above all this other stuff. His, his ways will outweigh our ways. That's what it says in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's not like, oh, our ways are compatible, but every once in a while, you ought to give my ways a consideration because you might discover that they're just better. He's not saying that. He's saying that his ways are always better. His thoughts are always higher. I think we in the West, we still don't get this. Some of the times, God's ways appear as foolishness to us. How do I know this? Well, it obviously appears as fullness to the Corinthians, otherwise Paul wouldn't have had to write chapter 1, would he? He had to write that for a reason. It's because he planted that church, and a few years later, things were a mess. How do I know this is true? Because every once in a while, God, in his sovereignty, decides to color outside of our lives. 
and we get offended. <laughs> Sometimes God colors outside of our lines just like that. And we get offended. Verses 21 to 25. For since in the kingdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The foolishness of God is wiser than our human wisdom, logic, reason, and understanding. Do you get that? Even his foolishness is wiser. His worst is better than our best. What we perceive as weakness can actually be divine strength. These verses keep me humble. When I think I'm at the top of my game, when I think I'm doing the best that I can, when I think I'm hitting on all cylinders as a pastor, keeps me wisdom, keeps me humble. God does some weird stuff. Have you read his book? Have you read about Gideon's army or David and Goliath or the parting of the Red Sea? That's some weird stuff. None of us would have made those choices. Our wisdom, reason, logic never would have put David in the pit against Goliath. Not one of us would have put our teenage boy in the pit against that soldier, would we? That just sounds ridiculous, but it was God's plan. It worked. It's what he was doing. His ways are not our ways. Stuff that upset Jesus did weird stuff too. And some of the stuff he did was so weird that the spiritual experts of his day, they killed him. That's how they responded. They killed him. Jesus did weird stuff. He didn't play by their rules. He didn't call it inside their lines. So I told you I wanted to get to the word stumbling block. Verse 23 uses the word, or the phrase, two-word phrase, stumbling block. It's really a polite interpretation of the Greek. The Greek word used here is the word scandalon. What word does that sound like? Sounds like scandal, right? Or scandalous. Jesus was so scandalous in his day that the, he was so scandalous to the religious culture of his day that they crucified him. That's pretty scandalous. When was the last time you did something scandalous for Jesus? When was the last time I did something scandalous for Jesus? Scandalous. Scandalous to me sounds a whole lot more, like more than just coloring outside the lines. It sounds a little bit more dramatic than that, a little more demonstrative. Scandal is a strong word. Strong's Concordance defines it this way, an impediment placed in the way and causing one to stumble or fall, a stumbling block, occasion of stumbling, a rock which is a cause of stumbling. Figuratively, it's applied to Jesus Christ, whose person and career was so contrary to the expectations of the Jews concerning the Messiah that they rejected him by their obstinacy and by their obstinacy made shipwreck their own salvation. 
That's a serious stumbling block. Because Jesus didn't do things according to their expectations. In my best attempts to follow God and do what the Spirit of God is leading me to do, I've been a stumbling block to other people. I've been contrary to their expectations. How about you? So what is a Spirit-filled church? I think number three, from time to time, a truly Spirit-filled church will be socially scandalous to the religious norms of the day. I believe that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, flowing in the Spirit, following His lead, will from time to time be socially scandalous to the religious norms of the day. The people Jesus hung out with, the ones He chose to be disciples, the relationships He had with women in His day, Man, it was, it just shattered the cultural expectations. It was truly scandalous. So if we had a home group meeting at my house and some woman came and began to wash my feet with her hair and pour perfume on it, that would be scandalous in this day. Could you imagine how scandalous that was 2,000 years ago? Every once in a while, if we're going to be a spirit-filled church, people may define who we are. And what we do is socially scandalous. That's in the realm of possibility. Along the way, if we're going to be a spiritual church, along the way, we're going to have to make some choices. Will I choose to be respectable? Or will I choose to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit? <coughs> will I choose what's socially acceptable? Or will I, will I go with the anointing? Will I live under the tyranny of the fear of man? Or will I just trust and follow God? Jesus was scandalous. Heroes of our faith, Martin Luther was scandalous in his day. Evan Roberts was scandalous. John Wimber was scandalous. John Arnott and what happened in Toronto, scandalous to the church. All of these were absolutely scandalous to the church of their day. Now, Nadine and I, we've had the privilege of living in big cities and small cities, some of the biggest cities in the world, like New York City, and in some really small towns, places much smaller than, than Charlottetown. And there were blessings to both. There are so many blessings. that We've decided at this stage of life, we kind of like smaller towns than big cities. It's just easier. You know, not as much traffic. I like the slower pace of life. New York City is really stressful. So we've, sat, we've discovered there's blessings and benefits on both sides. There are blessings to live in, uh, in a small town or a small community. However, there is a downside. And most of you are familiar with it. The downside of living in a small town is good news travels fast, bad news travels faster, right? I've only been here a little while and I know that's true. Most people who grow up in small towns, this is the fear that they live under. What will the neighbors think? Right? What will the neighbors think? What will people say? And so we live in this constant state of trying to monitor our surroundings and make sure that we don't say or do anything that will get the neighbors talking or people to say bad things about us. That's tyranny. That is the tyranny 
of the fear of man. That's bondage. And don't you know when we cry out and we pray for freedom that God may put his finger on that very thing. He may put his finger on that thing in your heart and in your life. Could you imagine what the neighbors thought of Peter and Andrew and James and John when they left their fishing business to follow this guy named Jesus who said, they're going to be fishers of men. Are you kidding me? That was scandalous. They left their father, left him holding the net, and went off and followed this Jesus guy. And then Jesus brings a tax collector into their midst. I knew there was something wrong with that Jesus guy. I thought my sons were all right, but a tax collector? Don't you know who he hangs out with? What's he going to be exposing my sons to? Scandalous. His ways are not our ways. When Nadine and I first left New York City, we were raised in New York City, and God put it on our hearts to plant a church in West Virginia. For us to follow God, to obey God, it was scandalous to my family. See, I was raised in a New York City family, and this is what my father drove into his sons. Get a city job. Got to get a city job. You'll have good pay. You'll have good benefits. You'll have job security. Because once you get hired by one of the unions in New York City, you'll never get fired, right? You'll work for it. Get a city job. That's what all three of us did. My brothers did it in mass transit. I did it in New York City school system. We all got city jobs. I had the best job of the three. Best paying, most job security, crazy ridiculous benefits. I could have stayed on that job the rest of my life and made a whole ton of money. And I remember having to tell my father one day, Dad, um, I'm going to leave this awesome job that you think is the pinnacle of what my life can be, and I'm going to go plant a church in West Virginia. He's what, God told me churches in Brooklyn? He told me. I say, I guess he does, but he's sending me there. His, 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 just, his mind went blank. He, he had no box for it whatsoever. I had a great paying job. I made a ton of money. And my father's thinking, you got a wife and two kids. You've never lived outside of New York City before. You're going to take a 60% pay cut. Are you kidding me? You're going to lose this solid job and go for something that's risky. Yeah, but God, but Dad, God, God told me to do this. It was scandalous for my family to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. His ways are not my ways. They're higher than my ways. So I had to sacrifice my cultural upbringing to follow God, just like the apostles did, and just like you might have to. There are highly held social and cultural values on this island that you might think are God's ways. This is where I'm meddling today, okay? There are highly held social and cultural values on this island that you might think are God's ways, but they're not. So much so that some of the things God's done in our midst, you found scandalous. You found offensive. It's rubbed you the wrong way. To the point where some have left the church and others are considering it. There are many unspoken, sometimes spoken, values about what type of behavior is appropriate or inappropriate in the church. For example, on this island, it's absolutely appropriate and acceptable to be passionate and wildly demonstrative about a hockey game. 
but not in church. The same behavior that you would feel very comfortable displaying in a hockey game and you would do liberally and freely, for some reason you come into this room and then that's not allowed. You could be watching a bunch of eight-year-olds with ice skates on and just be a maniac rooting for whichever team or child you happen to side you happen to be on. But coming here and that same type of demonstration seems like it's not God. Why is that? That's not scriptural. That's not biblical. That's not spiritual. That's cultural. That's social. We can scream and yell about kids playing hockey. We just can't get excited about Jesus. That same person who gets excited about hockey gets excited about Jesus and we think something's wrong with them. Why? Says who? And so for some of you, being inside a spirit-filled church, those cultural and social values are being challenged right now. That's what God's doing inside of you. And you might think it's the devil. You might think Tom's crazy. Or maybe it could be God putting his finger on your heart because there's some things he wants to set you free from that he wants to break off of you. What if it is him? For some, these values, these cultural values are being challenged. For others, these cultural values, they need to be put on the altar and say, okay, God, you could just burn this up and I'm going to move on from here. So what is a truly spirit-filled church? Number four, a truly spirit-filled church will sacrifice earthly culture for heavenly culture. For an eternal culture. Colossians 3, 1-3 says, Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with God in Christ. Let us, you and me, the members of Charlottetown Vineyard, let us set our eyes on things above and not be so easily distracted by earthly things. Verses uh, 26 to 31. I love these verses. I use these verses during my ordination ceremony. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who has become for us from God has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Let those who boast, boast in the Lord. This scripture tells us that God chooses the foolish, the weak, the lowly, and the things that are not. This is who he chooses. You know, my last name is Zawacki. And when my ancestors came from Poland and were being filtered through Ellis Island on their way into the United States, <coughs> there were some really difficult to pronounce Polish last names. And if the processor had a difficult time pronouncing the last name, he would just change it. And he'd say, Azawaki. Because the name Zawacki was an insult. 
And so he was insulting these people who came in with the funny last names that he couldn't pronounce. And so he called them Zawaki, which means crazy person. Or fool. Most of you agree with this, troublemaker. <laughs> so I'm, I'm the foolish thing. I'm the, I'm the nothing, nullifying the things that are. This is who God chooses, the foolish, the weak, the lowly. Oh, I'm so foolish. I'm so weak. I'm so lowly. You know what I know I've, I've learned about the foolish, the weak, and the lowly? They're messy people. They are. They're really messy people. God is so okay with messy people. He picks them. He chooses them. I'm okay with messy people too because I'm one of them. I remember the Lord told me once early on in my walk, he said, Tom, I've not chosen you for your strengths. He says, I've chosen you for your weaknesses. Then he can display his glory. He can... He can use what's so little and make so much out of it. I remember before I got saved, just the, the friends in my neighborhood, I was 16 years old, before I got saved, I was a follower. I would do anything to fit in and to be accepted. I think part of the reason why God captured my heart at 16 years old, because over the next two years, I'd lose half of my friends to drugs and alcohol. Some of them would die. And to fit in with them, and to not be an outcast among them, I'd have done everything that they did. I was a follower. And then almost overnight, he touches me, he fills me with his spirit, and now there are some, I don't know, 75 kids at our, at our prayer group, and my brother and I are the leaders among them. He took me from a follower to a leader. The, the only difference was this. The Holy Spirit was in me. He chose the foolish. I was foolish. Dumb as rocks. He chose the weak. I can't tell you how weak I was. He chose the one named Zawaki. Because that's who he chooses. I love these verses because I am the foolish. I am the weak. I am the lowly. I am the things that are not. That's me. That's your pastor. And yet he loved me enough. <laughs> Thank you. He loved me enough to choose me. That's why I love him so. I am absolutely. Guys, I'm nothing without Jesus. I'm nothing without him. And I'm everything with him. And so for this reason, because of what he's done in me, because he picked me, I wouldn't have picked me. I got truckloads of hope for the foolish, the weak, and the lowly. I got heart for them. I got space and room for them in my life. I've seen what God can do with the likes of me. I know firsthand how so little can become so much in his hands. So what is a spirit-filled church? A truly spirit-filled church makes room for the messy. Proverbs 14.4 in the English Standard Version says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Right? And so with the with the weak and the lowly, with the foolish, there can, there can come lots of strength from God. Because we got nothing to lose. Like I'll go with Jesus, because I'm nothing without him. But we can be messy. And so for some churches, they've made the decision 
they would rather not have the ox's strength so that the, the manger, the stall, the church can stay clean. Because God forbid anything in church should be messy. So we'll just take the ox and we'll get rid of it. And I'm saying, give me the ox. Lord, I don't care how messy the church is. I want the strength from the ox. I want all the strength from the ox. I've made my choice. Make the choice too. I beg you, make it with me. Some of the church prefer the clean stall to the messy ox. They want the presence of God so long as it fits within their preferred box of what's nice and neat and clean and culturally appropriate. The problem is this, guys. His ways are not our ways. And God will not be put in a box. As your pastor, I want you to know that I'm, I'll gladly put up with the messy church to have the Spirit's presence and strength. I'll gladly put up with it. Now, before I got here, this is a church that embraced a philosophy that they called belong, believe, and behave. I remember reading that on the church's website before I got here. And since I've come here, and I thought that was pretty good, I, I've edited it a little bit. From belong, believe, behave, to belong, believe, become. I think this is how it ought to work. Everyone belongs. I don't care if you're messy or you're not messy. Everyone belongs. I don't care if you got your act together or you haven't got anything together. Everyone belongs. That's our default position. That's, that's our starting point. That's the first step. Everyone belongs. And along the way, as we experience a spiritual journey together, we start to believe. And after believing for a season, we become more like Jesus. We belong, we believe, we become. Everyone belongs. The foolish belong, the weak belong, the lowly belong, the messy belong. Because those are the people God chooses. Now, how many of you guys follow me on Facebook? Right? You know, I, I usually put up a few quotes in the morning, and I've been on a long string of quotes by this woman, Benet Brown. Just fascinating woman. She's an author, speaker. If you ever listen to watch videos on TED.com, she's got three amazing 20-minute videos on vulnerability. And so uh, Dr. Benet Brown says of her research into the topics of vulnerability and shame, she says this, listen to this. One of the biggest surprises in this research was learning that fitting in and belonging are not the same thing. One of the biggest surprises in this research into vulnerability and shame. One of the biggest surprises in this research was learning that fitting in and belonging are not the same thing. In fact, fitting in is one of the greatest barriers to belonging. Fitting in is about assessing the situation and becoming who you need to be in order to be accepted. Isn't that life in a small town? Isn't that how, how that universe works in a small community? Right? Fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming whoever it is you need to be in order to be accepted. Belonging, on the other hand, does not require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. Who? Guys, at the Charlottetown Vineyard, everyone belongs. Everyone belongs. 
And there ought not be any need for us to find a way to fit in, to belong. We just belong. I want us to live in the fullness of freedom. What would it be like if each of us could live fully who God made us to be? If you could live in the fullness of when he shaped and molded you, instead of trying to modify yourself to fit what's acceptable, what if you could just be? And in being who you are, belong. I think that's what it's supposed to be. We shouldn't have to fit into belong. We just belong. We love because he loves us. We embrace others, letting them know they belong because he's embraced us and told us that we belong to him. As the years have gone on, I've discovered that my job as pastor is, is not what I thought it was. For a long time, I thought my job was to be the church's moral policeman. Make sure that none of you guys sin, that none of you guys did anything wrong. And if you did, you know, we would have a meeting. I would straighten you out. I would tell you how to change the things you did wrong, so make sure you did them right. That was my job. And if I wasn't doing it right, somebody in the church would let me know, you need to go talk to that person. <laughs> And tell them to straighten up. Okay, I'll get right on that. Call them up. That's not my job. God never called me to be the church's moral policeman. You know what? This may rock your world a little bit. It's not my job to change your behavior. Who do I think I am? To think that it could possibly be my job to change your behavior. What are you, children? You're grown-ups. I'm not responsible for your spiritual life. You're responsible for your spiritual life. It's not my job to change you. It's your job to change you. Your job and your relationship with Jesus. That's between you and him. And something needs to change. Now, if you decide to make a change in your life because you've been led by the Holy Spirit or inspired or challenged or even convicted by God to make that change and you need some help and you say, Tom, I'm trying to change this. I mean, can you help me? You better help you. I love you. I'm your friend. I'll do anything I can to help you. But you're going to have to be the initiator. I'll pray for you. I'll encourage you. But make no mistake, if we're going to be a spirit-filled church, if we're going to be free and live in the fullness of the freedom that's ours in Christ Jesus, it's not my responsibility to change you. That's between you and him. You, I don't have to make you fit in. I don't have to edit you or trim you or shape you. You just belong because you're his. And you know what? I don't really have the power to change you. I really don't. I can shame you or guilt you or manipulate you and use cultural and social pressure on you so that you conform, will conform. I refuse to play that game anymore. I refuse to do this job if I have to use shame or coercion or manipulation to get you to jump through the hoops I need you to jump through to man my programs or give money or, to do, or show up on Sunday. I refuse to do it. If, it, if these things, if these aren't things you want to do out of the freedom of your heart, then I tell you, don't do them. God loves a cheerful giver. And you know what? He's a really big God. He's Savior and He's Lord. And if He needs to make changes in your life, He can do it. Now, if you want my help, I'll offer my help. But I'm not going to initiate it. I'm not going to do it to you. And I'm not going to do it to anybody else. You belong because who you are is more than enough. You belong just the way you are because who you are 
is way more than enough. If Jesus could pick you, I'll pick you too. If Jesus says you could be on his team, you could be on my team. You belong. So in summary, what is a spirit-filled church? Of course it's a church that follows the leading of the Holy Spirit. Of course it's a church that, that embraces and operates in the gifts of the Spirit. It's a church where there will be the abundance of the Spirit's fruit. Additionally, a truly Spirit-filled church is a place where love is valued above all else. Where people willingly embrace God's ways over their own opinions, experiences, training, human wisdom, logic, or reason. It's a place where from time to time will be socially scandalous to the religious norms of the day. A truly spirit-filled church will be a place that sacrifices, willingly sacrifices, earthly culture for heavenly culture. And it's a church that will make place for messy people because they belong too. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that the Charlottetown Vineyard would live in the fullness of the Spirit, that yes, we are a spirit-filled church, and that we will live our life going forward to, together as a community full of your Spirit. Have your way, O oh God. Lord, I pray the stupid prayer today, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, no matter the price, in my life, in the life of my friends, make us to be who you destined us to be. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Now, if I can get the worship team to come back up, we'll, uh, we're going to pray. If you're here today, and if some of the things I shared this morning challenged you or provoked you, if some of the things I shared with you today, you felt like it resonated in your heart is true, but you need prayer, you need somebody to help pray for you, so that you could experience greater freedom. I'm going to ask that you do, you just come over to the side here, and I will gladly pray with you this morning so that you can be filled with the Spirit and so that you can experience freedom. Amen?